0: All right, turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Acts, as we continue our series through Acts. Acts chapter 2 is, is where we'll be. Is Jesus Lord of all? And that's the question I want you to contemplate. Uh, that song, I think, really sets up this sermon well, Jesus is Lord of all. But the question is, is Jesus Lord of all to you? What does it mean that Jesus is Lord of all? Better yet, what do we do with this? You can sing it out, you can shout it out, you can say it, but what do you do with it? I think there are massive implications. Have you ever been caught by an idea or a thought that just seems to control and guide your every move and decision. If Jesus is Lord of all, that thought, that concept, should guide everything that you do. It should guide everything that I do. I should be completely underneath this thought. And Peter's sermon this morning is about making the case that Jesus is Lord of all. And remember, this is the second part of Spirit-Empowered Preaching of Christ, Peter stands up um, after Pentecost, after the arrival of the Spirit was poured out on all of them, and he preaches a sermon based on the word, and as he does so, he proclaims this thought that Jesus is Lord of all. And we want to pick up where we left off in verse 22, and we'll move all the way through 36. Verse 22 begins in this way, fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him. Just as you yourselves know, though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to the cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. For David says of him, I saw the Lord ever before me, because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope because you will not abandon me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. You have revealed the path of life to paths of life to me. And you will fill me with gladness in your presence. Brothers and sisters, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried and in his tomb. uh, And his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not abandoned in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. For it was not not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord declared to my Lord... Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know this with certainty, that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Let's pray. Father, as we approach your word this morning, we are reminded about how small and insignificant we are compared to your greatness. Yet at the same time, we recognize the intricate care and foreknowledge that you have placed in bringing Christ to us, Lord. We we lift Jesus's name on high this morning. We pray that the Spirit would empower our preaching and the hearing of your Word, Lord. We ask that your name would be proclaimed in Sierra Vista, that Jesus Christ would be Lord of all in Sierra Vista, that His name would be magnified. Father, we ask these things humbly. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your mercy to us and your grace upon us. And we ask that you lead us and guide us, uh, search us as we seek to know you. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So Peter is empowered by the Holy Spirit, and he's making the case that Jesus is Lord. Peter points to the message of Christ, brings forward the scripture witnesses of Christ, and then finally he declares the ascension of Christ. And what you get from that one sentence that I just gave you is three things. The message of Christ, the witness of Christ, and then the ascension of Christ. And those are the three points of the sermon if you are a note taker. And so as you take your notes, you want to recognize the first thing we're noticing is the message of Christ. As, as Peter goes and he stands before all these people who are, some are mocking, some are amazed at this wondrous event, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, causing people to speak in all these other languages. He says, let me tell you guys what is going on here. And so he gave the message from last week. We saw um, how he used the book of Joel to explain what was happening Right now, he said in these last days, this is what is the start of this event. And then today he goes into verses 22 through 24, the message of Christ. And as you look at 22 through 24, you see almost a, an outline of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 22 highlights the life of Christ. Says, fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God. This word "attested" is often used um, in in the Greek language to signify someone who has been appointed to an office but not yet accompli- or not yet in that position. So it kind of would be like a president elect, right? He has been chosen, he's been attested, but he has not yet fully been consummated it's not been fully um, placed here He's not ascended to the position he says this man attested to you by God has done these things how is he attested by God with miracles wonders and signs that God did among you through him the whole subject of these verbs is God so God in Jesus's life did these things Wonders, miracles, and signs, just as you yourselves know. Peter says, how could someone do any of this if it were not by the power of God? He said, this is the very power of God among you. And as he says that, he he lays a little bit of guilt on their shoulders, doesn't he? He says, and you yourselves know. You know this. You know what Jesus did. You saw it with your own eyes. But he doesn't drive the guilt home yet. He barely, he lightly gives it to him. He says, you guys are guilty. You are guilty because you know Jesus. You know the things that he did. And so he continues by pointing out these amazing, amazing things are, are impossible apart from the design of God and that you have seen it. You know, guilt is a useful tool for conviction, isn't it? You ever do something wrong and and feel guilty? What about your children? Do they ever take something that they're not supposed to and then run to you and tell you, I didn't take that thing? My mom has a story. I don't know. I think she changes who was the guilty party whenever she tells it. But I think it's my sister. She thinks it's me. I don't know. But basically, she said one of us would do something wrong. We took some fruit snacks from the pantry, and then we would immediately run and tell her, I did not take those fruit snacks. (laughs) Right, The guilt of taking the fruit snacks comes out. And God created all human beings, uh, believers and unbelievers, with a conscience. And that conscience convicts us. The believer and the unbeliever know they did something wrong. But we see that two things can happen with the conscience. It can become uncalibrated, and it can become seared or deceived. And we see that in our world today, right? People calling good evil and evil good. We see that. But this conscience is useful for evangelism because our conscience can only truly find rest in Christ through confession and repentance and turning to Jesus for our righteousness. So consider that with me for a minute. Our conscience convicts us. So should we immediately try to assuage someone's conscience when you're sharing the good news with them? I think we're messing with the echo a little bit. I'll keep talking so that Richard can get it just right for your listening pleasure. That echo is... Sometimes like a conscience, isn't it? I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have done that. Over and over and over again. But this conviction is necessary. It is necessary to be convicted. I was talking to somebody the other day, and I said, you know, more and more, I'm not listening for when someone came to Christ. I'm listening for when God humbled them before they came to Christ, because that tells me whether I think they're saved or not. Because so often just of, of religiosity, but ultimately, they've never been humbled, and so they believe that God owes them something. There's almost this, this level of entitlement that comes with the Christian faith. Why would God do such a thing to me? I'm the daughter of a king. I'm the king of, or I'm the prince of the king. Why would I be treated this way? But if we're humbled and we know we're worms that have been given unmerited favor, everything is a cherry on top. Everything is whipped cream. Everything is extra to what has already come. And so we have this conscience that Peter uses in his evangelism. That's what we sometimes will refer to as the law and the gospel. The law is to bring conviction of sins. And I'm going to switch to this other mic because this is kind of echoey and I don't like it. I just think it might be too distracting. Is this one on, though? Can you hear me? All right. I don't like having my hands full of stuff. I like to move them. So this law and this gospel, we have the law that convicts us of sins and the gospel that restores us through Jesus Christ. And so we can only cure our conscience through confession of our sins and repentance and turning to the Lord, our Lord, in putting on his righteousness. The next thing we see in the message of Christ is his death. Peter points to the death of Jesus Christ. Verse 23. Though he was delivered up according to God's pre or God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you, once again he's kind of doing some guilt, used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God the Father had planned for Jesus to be nailed on a cross. Uh, This was a fact that was determined beforehand. It was planned. It was ordained. This was to happen. Nothing can change God's plan, his sovereign plan for Christ to die on the cross. That's what Peter is saying, that this was a plan that was And then he puts the blame on the people. Did you see that? The blame doesn't fall on God here. It falls on the people. And it said, you used lawless people. You used the Romans, the Romans who don't follow the Jewish law. You used them to kill Jesus. We have something, a glimpse of something that's a little bit mysterious, something that's kind of hard to unpack, um, something that may and sometimes does split churches. Is God in control of all things, or is He not? Does man have responsibility, or does He not? We have this God the Father ordaining for God the Son to die on the cross, this unchangeable plan. No one could change it from happening. There was no chance of Jesus not being crucified. This had to happen. Yet at the same time, it was the sinful desires of the people to kill Jesus and they used the power of Rome to do it, leading for the blame to fall on the feet of those human agents that had him crucified. But this isn't a new thing in Scripture. This is something we see way back in the beginning, that God has a plan, and man tends to have their own plan. And ultimately, the blame falls on us. And we see that... that Pharaoh in Egypt, there were times when his heart was hardened by God, and there were times when he hardened his own heart. We have almost this synergistic behavior that goes on in the heart of Pharaoh. He uh, chooses what is most desirable for himself. And isn't that true of all of us? We choose what we delight in most. Our desire is to go after what we desire, right? If, If my mom put up Before me zucchini or broccoli. I will always choose broccoli because I hate zucchini Right. There will be no choice there. I will always choose the one thing that my heart prefers And that's what we have after the fall is a continual pursuit of that which makes us most happy And it's not until we get to know Christ That that heart changes that we end up choosing the greater treasure We move from a sin nature to a Christ-pursuing nature. And so we have this blame is on the feet of the human agents that crucified him. Verse 24 covers the resurrection. 24 says, God raised him up, ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for death to be held by him. This is indicating the completion and acceptance of the sacrifice. God the Father accepted the sacrifice of God the Son on the cross, and therefore it is complete. And by raising him up, God is signifying his favor on this act. Peter emphasizes that the pains of death were ended in Christ, and the bonds of death could not hold him. Yeah, you know, Peter keeps indicating that Jesus is more than a mere human, but the promised Messiah. Jesus is God. That is what Peter keeps emphasizing over and over again in this passage. And if you're a, a Jewish audience, you know that there is only one God. And so as Peter begins to unpack this message, he begins to point, begins to point to the reality that Jesus is Lord. He is Messiah. With God the Father Father being the main subject of these verbs, Peter keeps highlighting that this is an act of God, and God at the proper time determined that Jesus would live and die and be resurrected, thus canceling the death debt that we inherited through Adam. This whole passage is Peter preaching the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. You can't help but be awed. By what Peter is saying here, that all of history is culminating in this activity here with Jesus Christ. All of history points to Jesus Christ. Can we can we just take a a short minute to think about this? Can can we just be awed? Can our, our hearts be stirred by the truth? If this isn't enough for you, if you can't, if this little section of scripture doesn't stir your heart with this reality that Jesus is Lord and this is an amazing thing beyond anything that we could grasp. No one could make this up. This is beyond human reasoning. Let me read something from Colossians to you. And I want you to think very carefully over the very words that Paul pens to the Colossians. He says this, talking about Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth. That means every one of you was created by Christ, by Jesus, who died for you. The visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and by him all things hold together. Your molecules are held together right now by Jesus Christ. The molecules of the Romans who nailed the, uh, put nails into Jesus' hands are held together by Jesus Christ. Think about that for a minute. The tree that Jesus Christ died on was planted and grown through his own will. The the iron that they mined from the hills was placed there by Christ. Everything was done by this Jesus who is Lord over all. And when we sin against him, our bodies are still held together by him. Think about that reality for a minute. The one who died for you is holding all things together. When you do that wicked thing in private... Not only does he see you, he's holding your molecules together, preventing you from just collapsing and falling apart. All things hold together by him. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Does that not humble you? That humbles me. Does that not lead you to want to worship? If that doesn't, I don't know what will. I don't know what will draw you to worship the king of kings if that passage does not. But Peter doesn't stop there. He musters the scriptures as witness to Christ. The scripture witness of Christ is found in verses 25 through 32. And in those 25 through 32 is essentially another quote from scripture. Psalm 16, 8 through 11 is quoted, quoting from David, Peter makes the case that this was always the plan. It was always the plan for Jesus to die on a cross, to be dead, and then to be resurrected. For David said, says of him in verse 25, I saw the Lord ever before me, because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, my tongue rejoices. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope. Because you will not abandon me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. You have revealed the paths of life to me. You will fill me with gladness in your presence. Peter then exposits that text. He reads the text, and now he explains the text. Verses 29 through 31 are the explanation of this passage. He goes, brothers and sisters, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. Now, let's stop there for a minute. David is called the patriarch here. That's an unusual thing for a Jew to call David. They usually would call Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They would call them patriarchs, but David was rarely a patriarch. And the reason I believe that Peter does that is to point to this fathering of Jesus, right? His descendant is Jesus. And so he says, our patriarch David is both dead and buried. He said this psalm was not about David. This psalm is not about David. It's about Christ Jesus. He says he was a prophet in verse 30, which is also unusual. David is not often referred to as a prophet, but David is prophesying something true. He is pointing to a greater reality. And he knew that God has sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Do you guys remember that promise that God made? Uh you can read about it in 2nd Samuel 7:12 through 13. This is really the hinge of the argument. This is really the the hinge of of Peter's statement. 2nd Samuel chapter 7:12 through 13 says this, "When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom." He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So we have a pointing to Solomon from David. He's going to build a house, but ultimately something further, a kingdom forever. That is Jesus, and Jesus is on his throne. Peter declares it. Peter says, this is Jesus is on the throne. In fact, he, he adds more to it. He says in 31, seeing what was to come, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not abandoned in Hades and his flesh did not experience decay. Christ descended and ascended. Verse 32. He says, we are all witnesses to this. God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of This, He says, you want more proof, more proof than what I've said? We witness this. He says, 120 disciples have seen this. Remember the promise that we have in Acts chapter 1 that Jesus gave to his disciples. It says, you will be my witnesses. And the pouring out of the Spirit is more confirmation that we speak truly to you about this. Peter is saying, this is an undeniable fact that this Jesus was dead, was resurrected, and he is now king, he is Lord, he is Messiah. You know, it's interesting to me that the, the ministry of Jesus as the son of David and king who came to vanquish not Rome, but the ancient foe, Satan. Christ is not only the king, but the sacrifice, and he is risen. He said, that's what Jesus' ministry is. He, He came as a conquering Messiah, and he will conquer the earth. But first, he conquered the foe, that ancient foe, Satan. The ministry of Jesus initiated the unveiling of the full and final plan of God. You know, it's interesting, Paul takes this theme, and all throughout his letters, he will say things like, the mystery of Christ revealed to the Gentiles. The mystery of Christ. Well, what is the mystery of Christ? That there has been a plan since the very beginning that this Jesus would come and save a people for himself. And to prove it, he began to pour out the blessings to all man, all mankind, for a new kingdom through a new covenant to be received by faith in Christ himself. Man, this has vast implications for the original hearers of Peter's sermon and also for us. Think about it for a minute. The, the Jews have been oppressed for a very long time. Kingdom after kingdom have conquered where they live. And they are overwhelmed. They had some victories in being able to restore the temple, be able to have some temple worship. But at some point, that's going to be, once, once again, and they are desperate for a Messiah. And just like the disciples, they, the disciples anticipated a restoring of the physical kingdom immediately. They said, are you going to restore the kingdom at this time? Was what they asked in chapter 1. But Jesus said, it's not for you to know. And he pours out the spiritual kingdom here, pointing to this new covenant, this new kingdom. The question I want to ask you is, do you believe Christ is on his throne? Do you believe he is working all things down here to the counsel of his will? Do you believe that? Do you see Jesus? How do you see Jesus? Do you see him as soft and effeminate? A shampoo model with nice flowing hair like a lot of those pictures depict him? Or is he the ruler of the universe, holding all things together by the power of his will? putting up with you as you sin against him, as you rebel against him. I need to see Jesus like this. I need to see Jesus as the conquering king. When I hear of the mutilation that is happening to children at the hand of quote-unquote doctors with gender reassignment surgeries and the like, I need to know that Jesus is on his throne. I need to know that he has an ultimate plan for all of this. I need to know that there will one day be a day of judgment that will rain down on this unjust practice. I cry out often, come Lord Jesus. Don't let us continue down here the way we are. But yes, Jesus is also meek and mild. He's inviting those who will turn and come to him in humility. If your your conscience is convicting you right now, come to him. Right now. He is the sovereign king of the universe and rules, and someday he will return with justice and might. You do not want to wait to submit yourself to his rule. You don't want to wait for that day. There's a a period of time which is now for us to turn to him and to submit ourselves to his lordship. Finally, Peter's point is that Jesus has ascended and is Lord. 33 through 36, he finally uh, finishes up his case. The therefore keys us in. He gives us the thrust of the message. The message is that Jesus reigns. Jesus uh, reigns. And, and ver, uh, verse 33 gives us the evidence. 33 says therefore since he has been exalted to the right hand of god and has received from the father the promised holy spirit he has poured out what you both see and hear the evidence of his rule is the pouring out of his spirit on his disciples and we are called to bear witness to our ascended king and one tangible way that we do that is through love john thirteen thirty five says by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Right, this is not a, a mushy gushy feeling. This is an action. Monday I, I was teaching chapel at the school and my message uh, the text of my message was first John four seven through eight. It says Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. And one of the main points I emphasize, if you guys remember Leah, Edward, all the Vance kids, Statler kids, is what? Who defines love? Yeah, God defines love. Love does not define God. And so if God's actions and God is love, he defined what love is, and that is the sacrifice of his dear son. So because Christ rules and his spirit is in me, I am enabled to love, to love the hard people. I love not because they deserve it or because they are lovable, but because my king and my Lord loves me who is an unlovable person because I am in rebellion against my God. The things that I do are rebellious against him and he loves me, and sustains me, even though that is who I am. And so I am able to extend that same love to others. And we have the Scripture witness. Again, you know, Peter stays really close to the text, doesn't he? He does not steer away from Scripture. He keeps preaching the gospel from Scripture. Verses 34 through 35 are saturated. In fact, he uses one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament, Psalm 110. And 34 says for it was not David who ascended into the heavens but he himself said the lord declared to my lord sit at my right hand until you, till i make your enemies your footstool Jesus is reigning but it is not yet complete All right we have this this already not yet tension don't we Peter is saying that Jesus reigns he is sitting at the right hand of god standing at the right hand of god and God has not yet made the whole earth his footstool yet. He says, until I make your enemies your footstool. The king rules, but has not yet fully subdued his enemies. This is why Christ reigns, but has not yet crushed all rebellion. I think we could say that Christ is already king with his kingdom, but for now, this realm is is visible Mainly in the public ministry of the word, the ordinances, the fellowship of his people, as they share their common gifts with each other. The church's mission is to call out people for Christ's kingdom. And this is done through the proclaiming of the word as the Holy Spirit gives them life. Our task is to make disciples of this new kingdom reality. So if Jesus is Lord... What is our mission to that Lord? To help others submit to Him. To bring others into discipleship of Him. Another way to put this is that the church is where we enroll in the new creation kingdom of Christ. This is where you get your ticket, if you want to use that type of language. As it will be highlighted next week, membership in the Lord's kingdom is through faith and repentance and by repentance. It's kind of like going to the airport and purchasing your ticket and waiting for your flight. In many ways, that's where we are, and we want to bring other people on the trip with us. Man, if you're going somewhere exciting, do you offer invitations to go with you? It's more fun to go with other people, isn't it? And so you want to bring them along. And so our mission is to make disciples, but not only that, is we are to help people be ready for the trip. As we go through this journey, discipleship means helping people more and more submit to our Lord, right? to be made into his image, to be conformed to Christ, to get mature as we grow in this life. Finally, I think the whole point is found in verse 36. Verse 36 says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Peter ends the portion of this message by declaring to the house of Israel. Remember, this is an expanding message. It starts with Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the ends of the earth. And so here he's recognizing, he's talking to the people of Jerusalem, of Israel, the house of Israel, know this, God made Jesus, Lord and Messiah, the one that you killed. He really drove home that the portion of guilt now, didn't he? What an indictment. You killed God's anointed one. It was a plan from the beginning of time, but you killed him. The application that I think we can draw from this is that if we do not belong to this kingdom of Christ, if we don't bear witness to this kingdom by the having the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, sealed upon us, we are guilty as well. If you do not know this Jesus Christ, if you are not in submission to the King of kings, you are lost, and when you die or He returns, you will be judged. This is a certainty. This is not to scare you, though it should scare you. This is not to frighten you into a decision, but it should frighten you, this reality. If you are not in submission to this king, you are lost. And it will not go well for you, as I tell my kids when they get in trouble. It will not go well for you. That's the message that Peter spoke to the gathered Jews in our passage. And it cut them to the heart because they immediately cried out and said, "How? what must we do to be saved? And they repented and they sought this King Jesus. If this describes you, if you are in rebellion against the Lord, today is the day to turn to Him. Now is the time to worship Him. Submit to this Jesus who laid His life down. What ruler do you know of that would willingly die for their people? Very few. Do you think our president would jump in front of a train for you? Do you think our governor would do that? Our, our Congress members, or anybody that, that tends to, to guide or rule our country. But Jesus, who is upholding you as you rebel against him, would do that. That is the Jesus that I worship. I hope that is the Jesus that you worship. If you don't, I want to invite you to meet with me after the service today and surrender your life to him today. If you are a believer in this room, you worship this risen king, maybe you have something in your life that you are holding on to. Maybe there is a sin. Maybe you have a desire. Maybe it's bitterness. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's hatred. Maybe it's sorrow, or even discontent, surrender those emotions to the Lord today. Not in our own strength, but in His gracious, nail-pierced hands. Place your worries into His hands and rest in this risen King. What more evidence could there be that Christ loves you and cares for you than what He has already done? So the conclusion is Jesus is Lord. Peter, empowered by the Holy Spirit, is making the case that Jesus is Lord. Peter points to the message of Christ. He brings forward the scripture witness of Christ. And then he finally declares the ascension of Christ. The challenge for you this week is, will you rest in this truth? Will you rest in this truth this week? Will you celebrate this truth this week? As we go from this place, how can you more submit your life to this Lord who is in control of all things? That's your challenge this week. Father, as we come before you, we are grateful that you are Lord and that we are not. Father, we would make a, a mess of things if we were in control. Lord, I pray that we would grow in maturity as we more and more submit ourselves to the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who deserves all glory, that we could recognize that Jesus is Lord. Father, I pray that you would impress upon every person in this room your majesty, that they would be humbled by this reality, that the King of the universe would come in the form of man and die in our place. Father, I pray that this reality would sit heavy on us, That our consciences would be pricked when we sin against you. That we recognize that you uphold us by your mighty right hand. That you keep us together. You don't allow us to explode into millions of molecules. That you hold us together by the power of your word. Father, as we approach this time of response, I pray that we would respond in worship in humility and gratefulness. Lord thank you for this service. We ask you ask you for these things in the beautiful name of Christ and by his powerful spirit. In your name we pray. All God's people said, amen.